Our reading this morning comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do what he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is our reading for today. I feel like the list of things that I miss enjoying with all of you, church family, as long as COVID is around, uh, keeps growing in some ways. Uh, One of those that I've thought about this week more so uh, is the joy of sharing lunch with you on Sundays. How many of you miss being able to hang out after here? Yeah, I know. Here we go. And just eat and talk. Food is an amazing gift from God. I think that's partly why we miss it. And if there are points during this sermon where I say something you thoroughly agree with, like my friend Josh Kruger just did, you should know you are welcome to say amen or to holler or to express your affirmation, okay? Because I'm convinced food is an amazing gift from God. There we go. I like that. Well, let's just stop preaching and eat, right? That guy's hungry. And when we're feasting on food together, not just eating, but feasting, friends, the the joy we experience in that is nothing less than a taste of heaven. And I'm not just talking about what's, what's on your plate Okay, I'm talking about the whole thing, you know, the the conversation, the laughter, the the thanksgiving, all of it celebrates the goodness of God. And so at risk of completely losing your attention to this sermon, I, I want you to think right now with me about the best meal, I know it's dangerous, Chris, that you have ever eaten. Just, just start thinking, Gabe Bowman. <laughs> I love you. Because <laughs> at the top of my list are some of the dinners that I've enjoyed with my wife, Aliza, on our anniversaries in particular. So here's a rundown of one of my favorite kinds of meals, okay? First, the waiter brings out the 1895. 
which is, good question, a Jefferson small batch bourbon with a sugar cube and orange bitters served over ice. And then, stay with me here, the Mannequin Farms lettuce arrives with squash, roasted tomatoes, crispy quinoa, and fresh cream of ginger. So some of you out there are like, I hate your food, but stay with me, all right? Then, at just the right time, an herb-roasted cobia shows up, followed with Carolina gold rice and stone fruit and radicchio and walnut and tomatillo salsa, accompanied by a glass of Domaine Vincent 2014 Chardonnay. And the final course is one slice, a large slice, of layered double chocolate cake with Valrhona ganache and Bailey's Anglaise and vanilla whipped cream and a steaming hot cup of decaf coffee. Can we go now? I know. I'm ready to have lunch. That would be quite a lunch. But you know, I, I, I linger there. Why, why do I do that? Because those are the sorts of evenings that we wish would never end, right? If you've ever had a meal like that, and, and just two hours, three hours, it's just gone. We're, we're not just eating, we're, we're feasting on good food. It's, it's an incredible gift. And, and yet part of what makes it so incredible, friends, is that feasting like that in this life, it points to something even greater. And so I want you to listen with me to how the prophet Isaiah describes the joy of life with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It's not the cheap stuff. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. There's a sermon in that phrase. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. And we've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's good news, isn't it, friends? That, that, that is exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. Translation, Jesus came to make you glad. To make us glad, but both now and for ages to come. And if you've been with us for a couple weeks as we've begun preaching through the Gospel of John, last Sunday we learned from John 1 that to be a Christian is to know and follow Jesus. But having heard that, remembered that, I ask, okay, 
Why should we do that? Why? Maybe you're asking this yourself. Why should I know and follow Jesus? Why why should I be a Christian? Well, friends, the beginning of John 2 gives you an answer to that question. Okay? You should know and follow Jesus because he alone can fill your heart with a joy that never runs dry. That's why. He alone can fill your heart with a joy, a feast that never runs dry. In other words, to put this even more bluntly, okay, Jesus came to get the party started. Think about that. And I say that because there are a lot of people, and I I talk with them, Christians, non-Christians alike, who who think if they're honest, maybe this is you too. You know, when, when, when Jesus comes to my mind, he just kind of lives in the anti-pleasure, anti-joy box. You know, he's, he's like, he's one of those people where if it feels good, he probably doesn't like it. Or, or he's one of those people that just, that always seems to have a, that parental face on. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of the, you know, frown, stern eyes, the, the, the kind of person who just takes some sort of sick pleasure in, in walking into a room where, where everybody's having a great time. Stop having fun! You know, just a, a scrooge. Well, if that's your notion of Jesus, friend, you don't really know him at all. You don't know him at all. Because the miracle Jesus does at the beginning of his public ministry that the very first of, of all the great signs in the fourth gospel that, that point to his divine identity and glory is what? It's preventing a party from running out of booze. You ever thought about that? Oh, well, uh, I'm sure that was just a, a moniker or a symbol or a, that's awkward. Stop. It is what it is. What we need to think about is why he would do that. Because I would argue it's hard to think of a louder, bolder, in-your-face statement of Jesus' desire for people to have a good time. But friends, lest you go the place we should not with this, know that the point of Jesus' actions It isn't to give you some sort of proof text that you can just kind of throw in the face of your teetotaler friends, okay? The the real meaning runs a lot deeper than that. Because Jesus isn't a frat boy. He's he's the son of God. And he's, he's tapping here, pun intended, into a, a recurring symbol in the Old Testament. Okay, where wine represents something. It stands for something. Not just a physical gift from God, but, but symbolically, the joy of life under his favor and blessing. So that's what the wine represents. Amos 9, 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What, what does the Lord say? I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. That, that, that's sensory language. That's poetic language. That, that's a stunning picture of the abundance of life and the fullness of life under the blessing and favor of God. But this chapter, as Jesse read a minute ago, it doesn't start with abundance. It starts with poverty. It starts with deprivation and shame. And I want us to focus on two spiritual principles in this passage. And the first is this. There is no enduring joy in this world. There's, there's no enduring joy in this world. Okay, in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples are invited uh, to a wedding, a wedding in Cana. And, and by the way, his attendance at this wedding is an implicit endorsement of the institution of marriage, which comes as no surprise given God is the one who created marriage in the first place. But you need to know that, that weddings in first century Palestine were a really big deal. I mean, they're a big deal here. The amount of money we blow in our culture on one day, it's like, why don't you buy a house? I'll get off that. But, but they were a big deal back then too, an even bigger deal, arguably. And what we would call today the reception or then the wedding feast could, could last up to seven days. Imagine that. Seven days. And it was the bridegroom's job to pay for the entire party. Yeah. And so suffice it to say, especially if you were the bridegroom, you did not want to run out of food or drink at your wedding party. Because the social stigma of that, the shame of that, would have, would have been enormous. And I think that we're in a different culture. We can relate somewhat, right? I mean, just imagine those of you who are married. Say you invited 250 people to your wedding reception. But you could only afford to feed 100 of them. And so, you know, they're all in the buffet line because at weddings, buffet lines just take interminably long and you're all starving and trying to keep smiling. And about halfway through... <laughs> When 100 people have come through, you know, the, the, the staff just comes up and puts up a sign at the table, says, sorry, buffet closed, no more food. That would be a little awkward, right? You, you wouldn't want that to happen at your wedding. There, there's a stigma with that. It wouldn't be very hospitable. And Jesus' mother, Mary, apparently, was also invited to this wedding. And it seems like she must have been a close family member or friend because she soon learns this dreaded news. The wine has run out. So look at verse 3. What does his mother do? Mary said to him, they have no wine. Which was what? A, a statement of physical truth, right? The barrels are empty. But friends, that's also a profound picture of spiritual reality. 
of, of the human condition apart from God. Because every cistern of pleasure in this world is broken. Every cistern. Eventually it runs dry. I mean, to take, the, take the joy of physical health. Maybe you, maybe you pride yourself in that. Like, I'm a beast at the gym. Or, or physical beauty. Well, whatever you manage to avoid injuring suddenly in your younger years, guess what? In your older years, age and sickness and illness will just strip away from you. That's inevitable, right? How about the joy of material wealth or prosperity? Even if you manage to avoid a sudden market crash or business failure, friend, you're going to leave all of that behind when you die. And and have you ever noticed that even now, before you've died, all that stuff, it's it's never enough, right? It's never enough. You know, so what what happens? You get a raise, your standard of living goes up, and before long, what happens? Your sights are set even higher, right? On and on and on. Our our hearts are never satisfied. And, And if you say in response to that, okay, well, Matthew, I'm... I've got this figured out. You know, it's not in my physical health. It's not in the money in my wallet. My joy is in my intellectual achievement. Well, have you ever talked to someone who's caring for a spouse or a parent with Alzheimer's? Or early onset dementia? Eventually, we we lose that too. But, but I can, even in saying that, I can almost hear the objection, right? Okay, Matthew, I, I, I grant you the pleasures of this world won't last, but right now, I've got them. So why not just enjoy them as long as we can? Well, friend, consider this. Please consider this. Ultimately, the wine we lack isn't something that this world can ever provide. Even on its best day, okay? The the wine we lack is the joy of intimate relationship with God. And and listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the depth of sorrow of all who die alienated from God and fall under his judgment. Isaiah 24 verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. The the absence of wine in the Bible, friends, it's a picture, it's a symbol of the utter absence of joy. And, And just as there is no greater joy than the joy of a life giving relationship with God, there is no greater sorrow than the sorrow of eternal separation from God. 
And you don't have to be a Christian, by the way. Again, those of you who come and hear the preaching of God's word on a Sunday like this or tune in online, I don't assume you're a Christian, okay? And I don't think you have to be a Christian in order to know that at least the second half of what I just said is true. Because I think some of you are tasting it even now. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how much you accomplish, if you're being honest, you are never truly satisfied. And if anything, the the, the emptiness within you just grows with every achievement because the work required to, to reach the next level just keeps getting harder and harder. And so that, that nagging question in your mind, will I ever be happy? Ever? Will I ever be happy? Why is it that as soon as I think, oh, I've, I've got this, there's happiness, I see it, it's gone. It's, it's like, like sand in your hands. Friend, if you're wrestling with that question, even right now, please know that is a holy gift from God. Because that alerts you to a longing only Jesus can fulfill. And and it's the whole reason that he came in the first place. Okay, look at verse four. Jesus tells his mom as much in verse four when he says what? My hour has not yet come. That that hour, that phrase, that's that's loaded in John's gospel. Okay, it just comes up over and over again. And in John 12, we discover that it refers to the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. The the hour when, when he would absorb in his body and soul the judgment of God against our sin. Because in that hour, his death would make a way for for the sin that right now separated us from God to be completely forgiven so that our relationship with God could be restored. So when Jesus says to his mom, and maybe this struck you as terribly strange slash a little bit rude, woman or or in our our own culture, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? That was Jesus' way of gently correcting his mom and reminding her that that what she really needed from her son, mom, what's this have to do with me? My hour isn't here yet. That what she really needed from her son wasn't a winemaker, but a savior. And that was a work that Jesus had yet to accomplish in John 2. But, But what he does here in verses six through 11 points us in that direction, okay? What Jesus does here, it foreshadows the abundant joy that he gives us by restoring our relationship with God. So let's focus on the second half of this section, okay? But point number two, we've seen there's no enduring joy in this world. We have no wine. Point two, everlasting joy is found in Jesus. Okay, so look at verse six. Look at verse 6. Jesus sees six stone water jars nearby for, John writes, the Jewish rites of purification. The Jewish rites of what? (laughs) 
Well, follow with me here, okay? Both the Old Testament law and all the additional rules that Jewish religious leaders established on top of that strongly emphasized the priority of ceremonial purity, which included practices like washing your hands before a meal. Kids, that isn't just something your mom or dad thought would be cool. That's been around a long time. (laughs) Or, Or a priest bathing in water before ministering in the temple. And and all of those external rituals of that sort reminded the Jewish people, if they had ears to hear, on a daily basis of of a much deeper need. And and that was their internal need, their deeper need, to be cleansed from the guilt of their sin. And so Jesus tells the servants of this party to to fill all of these jars with water to the brim. And then in verse 8, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast lifts the cup to his mouth and tastes a wine that is superior to everything that has been served up to that point. And he says in verse 10 to the bridegroom, calls him over, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. We, we get that, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. You just imagine the bridegroom like, thank you. You know, what, what do you do? Word doesn't tell us, but we can imagine. It's a miracle, right? It's a miracle. Through, through the sheer power of his will. Jesus didn't touch it. He, you notice that. He didn't pray over it. I mean, it just, he willed it and it was. That should tell you something about who, who this Jesus is. That's not hard for him to do if, if he created the heavens and the earth, by the way. But he works this miracle, and, and John tells us in verse 11, look there, that this was the first of Jesus' signs or miracles that revealed the glory of his person and work. So, so let's think about this. What does water turned into wine teach us about the Lord? How does it show us that everlasting joy is found in Jesus? I want to mention at least three things here, okay? First, why why is everlasting joy found in Jesus? First, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Remember here that, that Jesus didn't just turn water into wine, okay? He turned water in the very jars that were reserved for what? For ceremonial purification into wine. And that is really significant. There's no excess words in scripture, okay? Which is why John is really careful to identify these jars in verse 6, because it was a loud statement on Jesus' part, friend. Please hear this, that the external and temporary cleansing from sin afforded by all the various ceremonial guidelines and sacrifices under the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law, all of that had come to an end. A decisive end. And it it wasn't, notice this, because God decided, well, you know, sin, that's just not such a big deal after all. No, okay? It was because the sacrifice Jesus was about to make the atoning power of his shed blood would prove wholly sufficient to cleanse us from sin once and for all. 
And so, so when Jesus turns the water of purification into the wine of celebration, it's his way of saying, listen, all, everything that the rituals and sacrifices and ceremonial washings under the old covenant, remember all that, guys? All of that points to me. Hebrews 9, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered under the Mosaic law, old covenant, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once and for all into the holy places, the presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, or we could add washings, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And and I love how Leon Morris summarizing this point, he he says it this way, Jesus turned the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. I love that. Because water, this water at least, was used to what? Cleanse them without. But what did the wine do? It nourished them from within. Think about that. It's a picture of the fundamental change in the way that God related to his people under the old covenant before Jesus versus the way God relates to his people in the new covenant after Jesus. Because the law of Moses focused on on external confirmation. You have to be conformed in the ethics of your life to the law of God. But but the law of Christ focuses, starts where? With internal transformation. And and so what the law of Moses demanded from without, what happens under the new covenant? The indwelling spirit produces from within. It's a stunning picture. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Second, what do we see here and what he does? Jesus is the decisive outpouring of God's blessing. Decisive outpouring. I I love how John records that that the servants filled the jars with water halfway. No. Where were they filling? Up to the brim, right? They they couldn't hold anymore. They were about to overflow. And and just think for a moment, if you haven't done this already, about the quantity of wine that Jesus produced. Okay? It was not a case or two of bottles from Costco. It was 120 to 150 gallons of the best wine. And if you do the math on that, that's about the same volume as 8 to 10 kegs of beer. 8 to 10 kegs. And, and so clearly, we are not talking about, you know, a happy hour special before heading home after work. We, we are talking about an off-the-charts party. Who shows up to a party with eight to 10 kegs worth of beer? 150 gallons of wine. What what should that tell you, friends? Ha ha, God's a drinker. No. It should tell you that God isn't a miser. What was the first song we sang this morning? Generous King. It's true. 
right? The, the spiritual blessings he gives us through the personal work of Christ, they're not meager or limited. They're abundant and overflowing. I love, Bruce read this already from Ephesians 1:3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Jesus didn't make all that wine because he wanted the wedding guests to get tipsy. He made that exceedingly good wine to teach us something about himself. He he did it to give us a a picture of the overwhelming, abundant, off the charts joy of life with God through faith in Christ. Because God created you to know him, friend. God created you to, to enjoy him. So think about this. In relationship with God through Christ, you are completely known and perfectly loved and eternally secure. You have an identity that can't be lost, a mission that is guaranteed to succeed, and you're in a kingdom that will never fail. And so that means Christianity isn't, it's not an insurance policy to to get you through the pearly gates. You know what it is? It is life as it was meant to be. It's fullness of joy and, and, and immeasurable blessing and, and gladness forevermore. It means knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and serving Jesus and, and being who God made you to be. That's what Christianity is about. It doesn't get any better than that. Except if you're following Jesus right now, one day, it will. Because, finally, Jesus is the bridegroom who comes for his own. I pray often for single women in this church who want to be married. Because I can only begin to imagine how hard that weight can be. I'm not saying you become a real woman when you get married. Don't tell me I said what I'm not saying. (laughs) I'm saying that that grief is real. And if that is you, my friend, my sister, you need to know that there is comfort in this truth for your heart, that you are not waiting to be pursued and loved by your maker and your savior. I do not pretend that is some replacement in this life for the joy of having a husband, a human husband, but in our sorrow and in our wait, let us not forget that we are not waiting to be pursued by God or waiting to be loved by God. Because this wine in John 2 is, is loaded with symbolism, but so is the wedding. Because in the Old Testament prophets, the Lord repeatedly describes his, his relationship with his people Israel in marital terms. Isaiah 62 verse 5, For as the young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I mean, you realize that that's why the Lord describes Israel's disobedience throughout the Old Testament as spiritual adultery. 
And, and in our continued struggle with sin, even as Christians, friends, we're, we're no different. Every, every time we wander off the path of God's commandments, every one of us, even as believers, we're playing the whore. And yet, where we are faithless, our God remains faithful. Because if you're a Christian, you, you have been eternally united to Christ, such, such that you're part of his body. And, and on earth, his body is represented by what? The church. And what do we know about the church from the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5? It is the bride of Christ. And guess what? If you are part of the local church, a member of the bride of Christ, Contrary to much of what takes place on social media today, Jesus is not in the business of slandering his bride. He doesn't tear down his bride. He, he doesn't deride or mock or belittle or ignore or abandon his bride. You shouldn't either. Jesus nourishes us and he cherishes us till the day he returns, friends, to, to bring us home to him. Revelation 19, verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How did she get ready? It was granted her grace to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, the feast at that wedding day will not have a budget. It won't be restricted by the next upcoming event, and we will most certainly not be running out of wine. And so take heart, friend, because if you're a Christian, even now, Jesus is working in you individually, working in us corporately to, to make us ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and he has spared no expense to do so. Think, think about this. One of the remarkable mercies in John 2 is the way that Jesus protected this unnamed bridegroom from humiliation, right? The, the wine that he provided, what did it do? It more than covered the shame of that man's poverty and his inability and his weakness and his shortcomings. And as the bridegroom par excellence, Jesus does the exact same thing for us, friends. Same thing. His, his salvation, his blessing, his joy, it, it overwhelms our sin and our poverty and our sorrow in the same way that the sea swallows up a single grain of sand. But that gift is only possible because he was willing to walk a road of humiliation, pursuing us and cleansing us, that that cost him nothing less than his own life. And the price that he paid to do that on the cross, that reveals to you the depth of his love, which is why we, we do what? We look to the cross whenever the sorrows of this life threaten to shipwreck our faith, right? 
or swallow up our joy because what do we see on the cross? We see the face of our bridegroom who came and is coming back again, proving that, that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God. That's your inheritance if you've turned from sin to follow Jesus. And so, so if I were to summarize this whole passage, you can think of it this way, very simply. When Mary declares, they have no wine, we hear what? The truth of our condition apart from God. We are more sinful and lost than we could possibly know. And when the master of the feast declares, but you have kept the good wine until now. What do we hear in that? We hear the joy of what Jesus has done and is doing and will one day complete. What is that? That we are more loved than we could ever imagine. That's the gospel. So why should you choose to know and follow Jesus? It's because, friend, Jesus came to fill your heart with a joy that never runs dry. He's he's the fulfillment of the law. He's he's the decisive outpouring of God's blessing. He's the bridegroom who comes for his own. Believe and rejoice in him accordingly, friend. And know that there, there is no better witness. We have no better witness to the truth of our faith and the goodness of our Savior than our unflagging joy as his people. And I love how reflecting on this passage, J.C. Ryle concluded, the Christian who walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he were attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to the believer. It is a real misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. Friend, know that in Christ, no no matter what happened last week, no matter what's going to happen to you this week, you have an abundant reason to smile. Not not, not a, how are you doing? Eh, fine. No, deep genuine, even through tears of sorrow, joy in Jesus. And so my prayer is, as we respond to the Lord in singing, is that he would empower you to continue to rejoice in him and remember and not forget that in Jesus, the real party has already started. Let's pray. Father, it almost seems too good to believe sometimes. That you actually came to fill us with joy. Because of our battle with sin, there's so many things in this world where we find ourselves just chasing broken cisterns. And I pray, God, that even through this passage, you would remind us that only you can give us wine. A wine of joy and life, of abundant blessing and favor through a restored relationship with the Father. Lord, forgive us where we have chased those broken cisterns, even this week, in a relationship, in our job, in our image on social media, in our finances. 
And I pray that you would give us a hunger and a joy in the wine of life that only you can give. Jesus, thank you that you are not just true or right, but you are deeply and eternally satisfying. And we pray that you would strengthen our hearts as we prepare to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.